Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Hey folks, Dave Harvey here, and this is the Am I Called podcast. And joining me to help with the interview today is Stephen L. Trogi. Stephen, I was thinking that you and I are the only people in Tallahassee that can say that we were once residents of Indiana, Pennsylvania. Home, we are, yeah. Yeah, home of what famous old school actor who was also a resident. Does Colin know the answer to that? Colin, do you know the answer to that? <laughs> Indiana, I Pennsylvania. The other, I thought you were asking Oh, we both other, know. Yeah, we no, both we know. know. Oh, okay. We're, we're from there, uh, we know. Gregory Peck, I'm going to guess. Oh, close. I don't know. No. Jimmy Bogart? Stewart. I don't know. I'm Jimmy working on Jimmy Stewart is the answer. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. very famous. So, All right. Just in case you're wondering whether there's any distinction to the Am I Called podcast, I think that... <laughs> Pretty much settles the matter. It's our one claim to fame for the entire town. <laughs> so joining us today, folks, is Colin Hansen, and Colin is the editorial director of the Gospel Coalition. He's the author also of several different works, probably the most popular one being Young, Restless, and Reform, which I think is passing its 10-year anniversary, at least as the Christianity Today article. Is that right, Colin? Yeah, that's right. So we're a little past 10 years now from the article, cover story in Christianity Today, and then we'll be coming up on 10 years in about a year and a half, I guess, for the uh, for the book. Colin, you're, you're joining us during what really is a historic week. I mean, three days ago, Donald Trump pulled an upset and was elected as president of the United States. And so along with that, the Republicans now occupy the majority in the, ho- the, majority in the House and in the Senate. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of wanting, wondering where your mind is in all this. What, what encourages you about these turn of events? And, and where do you think Christians, where do you think evangelicals might be vulnerable now with this setup? Yeah, there's one, uh, one key area where I'm pretty encouraged. And that's that Hillary Clinton will not be selecting uh, Antonin Scalia's replacement on the Supreme Court. So that's a positive. Um, I don't see any other way to spin that. The possi- my, my concern with Donald Trump from the very beginning was that at his worst, he would be even worse than Clinton. And my thought process leading up to this election was that that was a risk that I was unwilling to take. I wasn't willing to take the risk with, with Clinton either. Um, but uh, now we have the test before us. Many people I love dearly, whose, whose opinion and beliefs I respect, did vote for Donald Trump, and they never shared the same pessimism I had. So my, my hopeful take at this point is that let's hope they're right. <laughs> let's hope their perspective prevails, that my fears are unfounded, and, um, and let's Let's go forward and, and start right off the bat with a Supreme Court justice who will respect the Constitution. That would be a huge benefit to, to believers in many different ways, among them religious liberty, but I would hope most importantly as it relates to a culture that values life uh, throughout. So, well, that, And, and um, having, a, having a, a congressional majority and having a, the election happen in the way that it did really does constitute – a mandate almost. So 
if he's going to be able to do anything, it's not like there's going to be many obstacles in his road, at least for this next year. Yeah, right. At least for at least for a couple years. Um, you might even have I haven't heard a lot of chatter about this. You might even have one Democrat who might switch in the Senate, which would push Republicans up to 52. You need every vote you can get. There's still the possibility of filibustering. But this is one reason why no matter what side of the aisle you come down on, you have to treat you have to treat uh, issues in a consistent manner because Democrats said that they I mean they knew they might not regain the Senate, but they were pretty confident about their chances with Hillary Clinton. So the thought was, let's get rid of filibustering because that's going to get in the way of President Clinton's agenda. Well, now what? Now what are they going to say? <laughs> about that, because now if President Trump can push in his Supreme Court justices, uh, or at least just one justice right here off the bat, with only a bare majority, that really makes it impossible for Democrats to stop anything unless they can sway two, at least two Republicans against Trump, which is certainly not likely as it relates to Supreme Court justices, unless he goes off the rails. You asked, um, yes, Dave, what the concern is. And that's that with the widespread credit evangelicals are getting for voting for Trump um, in terms of helping to put him into office, that means that ultimately evangelicals will be responsible or held accountable for what he does. And you can look at that a couple different ways. If that goes well, that might be a positive thing for the church. If it goes negatively, this is what I wonder Will the evangelicals who voted for Trump and put him into office, will they speak out against him if he betrays them? Because Trump did a lot of things that a lot of Christians overlooked and made excuses for in the campaign, things that did not seem to to spread the aroma of Christ and were very odd with the church. So I don't know which way that's going to go, Dave. I mean, but that's if things go poorly, will evangelicals speak up and criticize him? and hold him accountable, or will they give him a pass, as they have already? Many of them, and I'm really talking here specifically about some key leaders who were um, professional excuse makers for Trump. I'm not speaking here about all the people who voted for him, many of whom made reasonable decisions based on the information they had. The statistic I heard was 82% of evangelicals, which is pretty sweeping, uh, voted for Donald Trump. And much higher than I expected it to I be. I think that was the New York Times exit polls, that it was right around 80% of, I think it was white evangelical born-again Christians were voted for Trump. At least that's the number I saw. Right. And we all know that, we know the media is extremely trustworthy. <laughs> and, and that polling is always accurate. Right, yeah. Uh, As we've seen, polling works. If polling works, if we learned anything from this election, we've learned that. You know, there are so many different ways. It's easy to draw conclusions based off statistics like that, but there are so many different factors. First of all, that because of the way our politics works, you actually have to separate out black and Asian and Latino uh, evangelicals from white evangelicals because they tend to vote so differently uh, from each other. So you're really talking there only about white evangelicals. And then on top of that, there are a lot of different ways to categorize evangelicals. One of the most popular ways today is more or less to simply find that somebody goes to church on a semi-regular basis, and that person is not a member of an explicitly liberal denomination. Everybody else then gets thrown into that loop. But if they also say that they're born again, 
as a widespread group of people, actually many of whom are not in churches on a regular basis, especially in places like where I live in the South. And so that pulls together a wide cross-section of people with varying degrees of spiritual commitment, but still the 80 plus percent number is pretty substantial. And when you compare it to Romney and to McCain, it would appear to be higher. And that's certainly comes as a surprise to many of us, including myself. So I started the question column by talking about the historic week we're having and, uh, and also made reference to the fact that we're, you know, or, or you are marking the 10-year mark of having first published the thoughts on the young, restless, and reformed. It was a, it was a Christianity Today article in 2006, and uh, one of the things I was thinking about regarding this, because I read your book, Blind Spots, and, and you, make, you make a comment in Blind Spots that every generation thinks of its own era as being a watershed moment. This is, you know, this is unprecedented in history. And uh, I wanted to get you thinking and interacting a bit over how you might gauge Young, Restless, and Reformed, or, or this movement from a historical sp standpoint, you know, is this some kind of watershed thing in history? That's a great, it's a great question. I'm glad you followed it up from the election question as well, because they overlap. Um, one of the things that I've been talking to people about lately is that Young Restless Reformed has been especially concentrated in its influence in college settings, graduate schools and seminaries, media, um, denominational positions of, of influence, and um, especially in more secularizing areas. So think of people like Tim Keller, who I actually didn't even write about in the article or in the book, for that matter. Um, somebody who I've only gotten to know subsequently as vice president of the Gospel Coalition, um, so think of that kind of that kind of influence. So there's undoubtedly a pretty dramatic change there in terms of of the the makeup of our seminaries, the the influence or the perspectives that you hear coming out through the media. Who to denominational leaders? Think of a Russell Moore at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the SBC, or think of David Platt as president of the International Mission Board, the largest missions agency in the world. Um, think about all the church planting that's happening. Uh, think of all the campus ministries and and, uh, and all the evangelism they're doing and the significant influence of this movement there. So all of those things are undoubtedly true. Um, but one of the things that has nagged me from the beginning is that this has, and I'm, I'm certainly a part of this whole trend, it is. It has not been a popular level movement, by or a populist type movement, and it has very little penetration outside of those um, outside of those with higher degrees of education, and in many cases wealthier areas as well. I'm not saying there's no influence. It's just comparatively, there's a lot less. So it's the kind of thing where I'll often tell people that I could drive. 20 minutes outside of the city of Birmingham where I live, and you're in the middle of the Bible Belt. But I'm going to struggle to find a church where I'm really going to feel at home in. But if you dropped me in Berkeley, California, 
I'd have no problem. And that reflects some of the priorities of the movement. It also reflects some of the inherent attraction of Reformed theology. It's always been among those people who are more just interested in theology to begin with. It's always been overrepresented at those academic levels. And the election is one of those things that reveals some of that division. And it reveals some of the historical limitations of this movement. And uh, it's one of the things that I wrote on election night was, this is a reminder that those of us who think of ourselves as influential or, or, or leaders, we sometimes, it's easy to miss what's, what's happening at a popular level um, among, a, in many cases, a larger, at least numerically larger group of people. Given the fact that we live in a democracy, that's how a lot of big decisions get made. Is so, there any sense, Colin, where maybe we haven't yet experienced the trickle-down effect of the leaders and the thinkers embracing this? Um, you know, I think about church planters that are being raised up and sent out and planting churches, uh, guys that are taking over and inheriting pulpits and just beginning to season the churches with Reformed preaching. Um, is it just that we're not seeing the first fruits of that yet? Yes, I mean, that's definitely part of the case. So in addition to the other dynamics that I've described there, age would be another factor. So even those denominational leaders that I mentioned, they tend to be at the oldest, at the kind of pre seminary presidents, think of somebody like Albert Moeller, around 55, or somebody like, uh, like Russell Moore, who's 45, or somebody in his late 30s, like David Platt. So yes, I mean, I remember people thinking about Moeller and looking at some of his predecessors at Southern Seminary and thinking the way you truly have influence in a denomination like that is when you're there for 40 years and or there for 30 years or something like that. And remember, Moeller was 33 when he started in 1993. So that's a real, it's a real possibility there for him. But it does, it does take time. I guess the other factor, though, Dave, of... I'm not sure how that's going to play out, is that for my position at Beeson Divinity School, where I've got um, students coming in and talking about a lot of these things, a lot of students are coming from uh, more rural areas or exurban areas or even suburban areas, but they have no plans to return to those locations. They have no desire to return to those locations. And so you have an increased kind of concentration of like-minded people and that could prevent any sort of trickle down in part because the people would self-segregate with people who think like them. The big example of this is that there might be some kind of small parallel outside would be what just happened with the Democratic Party um, in this election. We have all these people saying, I don't know a single person who voted for Donald Trump. Well, you're missing a little more than 45 percent of the voting American population. That's a pretty big group. So you do really you really limit your influence if you are only surrounded by people who think the same way you do. Is is part of the point that you're making then that it, that something doesn't become watershed until it actually drills down into the into the populist? Well, I think I think there's maybe some some truth to that, but I think um, when I think when I think about say mass religious movements like the Second Great Awakening. That was ultimately a populist movement. We think about the, some of the key leaders, like a 
like a Charles Finney or a Timothy Dwight or on and on and on down the list. But ultimately, that was undoubtedly a popular level movement that led to the dramatic expansion of church planting, the dramatic expansion of schools, um, just mass groups of people migrating in terms of their denominational affiliations. And so with the historian's cap on, I definitely see a trend with what's happening over the last 10 to 15 to 20 years, but I would not put it in the same category as some of these mass religious movements in American history. I would actually say that if you're looking for a parallel in our own day, Dave, you would look internationally at the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. Domestically, you'd look at some sort of combination of the charismatic Pentecostal movement along with the fringes of that prosperity gospel or outright prosperity gospel. I mean, that's that's a far more numerous people out there. Just look at any bestseller list of Christian books. You are not going to see a lot of stuff on there that the Young Restless Reformed are reading but you're going to see a whole lot of Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer on that. And that, that's actually, Colin, I wanted to ask you, I've been thinking about this as you've been talking. It seems like, and this touches briefly on what you said earlier about uh, reform theology, in some ways it, it's a, it can be a bit more in, on the intellectual side, and, and uh, some people enjoy that. But do you think that it maybe part of the issue is that the way reform theology is communicated uh, can also, at times, it seems to me, be prohibitive toward people enjoying it or understanding it even. Yeah, well, one of the dynamics that everybody is going to be familiar with and that you've written about, Stephen, um, in very humorous ways, is the phenomenon of the cage stage Calvinist. There's a sense in which if you grow up in an environment that does not teach reform theology, but you're of a certain inclination to take an interest in reading on these subjects, certainly the Bible, but then other works as well, that you become very zealous. Um, but like many other converts, you become zealous in such a way that actually repulses other people. It does not attract those people. So I don't know how much of it has to do with Reformed theology in and of itself, or how much it has to do with, uh, I mean, at, at some level, we have a big, big country. It's a big world. There's a lot of counter trends are possible. It's entirely likely that certain forms of religious expression that fit American culture like a glove, forms of moralistic therapeutic deism or forms of health and wealth gospel that fit well with the American dream, that those trends can be true at the same time that there might be a strong counter trend of Reformed theology that might not have the same size and scope, but that might be a genuine phenomenon. So I'm not trying to undermine my own work in saying that it's not a genuine phenomenon. I'm just trying to put it in some broader historical social perspective to say I've never contended that it was the explanatory religious phenomenon by which all others should be judged. And something like what we see of the way elites get surprised by an election is just a good reminder of us of how what we might perceive on Twitter is not necessarily representative of the rest of the country. I remember, <clears throat> just to, I'll give you this anecdote, because a lot of the people, I think probably listening here, are the kinds who are on Twitter. I love Twitter. Um, remember four years ago, campaigns saying that they thought about banning their reporters from using Twitter because it was such a deceptive medium from being able to understand the actual trends because it so heavily concentrates people 
who are in that same sort of thought space, basically, the kind of people who are heavily engaged in this stuff. But I didn't see, I saw the media make the exact same mistake again, (laughs) that they did not learn from four years ago in that. And it just made the issues even more severe with the pollsters and pundits completely confused. So where do you see this going, Colin? I mean, if, um, you know, back, back in 2009, Time Magazine listed this, this new Calvinism, the young, restless, and reformed as one of the, quote, 10 ideas changing the world right now. And I'm, I'm curious, it's, you know, it's seven years later, and uh, at, to the, ex- the extent to which it might be changing things is, well, the jury's probably still out on, but are, are you encouraged by how it's developing and, and where it's going? You know, where, where do you see it making a difference from here? I certainly do. I am encouraged. Um, and if I weren't in the position, I guess <laughs> that'd be an awkward thing to think through with my position at the Gospel Coalition, because a lot of my job is to try to carry out these theological convictions and to try to spread them. And so I do see all manner of very encouraging things out there. I see I see a, a focus on, on mission. I see a huge influence, a, a desire to say that in a secular age, we can still see people come to Christ. We can still be reaching out. I, so I, I continue to see that aggressive edge related to church planting and campus evangelism and apologetic books. And um, so, I, I mean, I, I see that focus as being very helpful. That's one of the things that I think will be helpful for the movement to not become especially preoccupied with itself. Um, I think this works for churches as well, Dave, but when we, um, when we are fixated on the differences that we have with each other, or if we're not focused on a mission, I'll put it that way, like mission puts things in perspective. When you realize that whatever trend we're a part of or whatever per church you're a part of, it's a small part of what God's doing around the world, and it's a small effort in terms of meeting the overall need. Um, when you keep that perspective, it helps to keep your own differences in perspective as well. And so one of the things that I'm hopeful about is as long as that kind of missional bent remains true, then we are not going to succumb to just this this paralyzing fixation on ourselves. And at least that's something that I want to continue to to foster because the, the reality is the needs are tremendous. The challenges are numerous, and it'll be enough of us in our lifetime and our children and our grandchildren's lifetimes if the Lord tarries for us to invest in this work and find plenty of plenty of opportunity. So I'm hopeful for that main reason, Dave, that those elements, when you think about church planting in particular, that have characterized this movement from the very beginning are still um, are still on the front burner today. Now, just a few days ago, I, I heard you do an interview with Justin Taylor, and Justin was kind of characterizing the development of the YRR movement. And uh, he described the first phase as being about soteriology, and the phase that followed that was about ecclesiology. And, uh, and then he went on to say he thinks that the upcoming phase was going to be about race and gender. And I think that's where you, you, uh, you stopped him and said, well, I don't think it's race and gender. It's broader than that. It's, it's more about public theology. And uh, that was really interesting to me. So what, why don't you 
Why don't you talk about that for a second, Colin? What is public theology and and why is it the next phase? Yeah, I'm thinking there particularly, Dave, about essentially the church's posture toward the world. So before, uh, when you start out with the soteriology phase, that's the phase of, I just read Romans 9 and Ephesians 1, and I'm getting really excited about this. The ecclesiology phase is then like, look, we need to, we need to figure out how to make this work in our churches. Uh, everybody else needs to hear about this. We need, to, we need to implement the implications of this. Then you jump forward, and yes, I think what Justin's getting at with race and gender is true, because those are just plain the most controversial things in our culture. I mean, that's not, that's not a church thing uh, specifically. That's just everything that we're talking about all the time. You turn on ESPN, and you're going to see a lot about race and gender. Um, in fact, you've seen a dramatic shift uh, in the last eight years in this country toward our entire culture. Like, I would never expect it eight years ago that I would turn on talk radio in the Deep South, and they would be fixated on issues like Caitlyn Jenner and Colin Kaepernick. That's what I mean. Uh, that, I think that's what Justin's getting at there. So insofar as we are starting to look out toward the world and not be um, only focused on what's happening inside the church and our own, um, and our own disagreements and our own arguments, we're starting to confront those issues. And so I just put that in the broader category of, of public theology, meaning just the church's posture toward what's happening in the world and then I do come back, and I would see race as one of those key factors. And, I mean, I have conversations every single day um, with racial minorities in particular, many of whom are a part of this reformed movement, who are, they share core uh, sociological convictions, they share core ecclesiological convictions, but their experience of the world is very different from mine. And in many cases, their experience, uh, their, their, their kind of prescription for the world is very different than what a lot of uh, majority culture whites would expect. So when I talk about public theology, it's like as this movement comes into its own and, and assumes positions of broader, uh, broader um, Christian leadership, we are confronted with, well, then how are we going to tackle urban violence? How are we going to tackle policing? How are we going to tackle transgendered issues, things like that? Um, and that's, uh, I mean, that, that's, I don't really know how that's going to shake out. But this, this last election, again, is going to show us pretty clearly the urgency of, of addressing those issues. So, Colin, what, what marks the transition or, uh, or the end of, of one phase of the Young, Restless, and Reformed and uh, movement and, and the, the shift to the next one? Is it, is it indicative of something good that's happening, that there's resolution? Or is this just, you know, evangelical inability to remain sufficiently fixed in one place and we're just moving on to the next thing? Yeah, I, I'd actually never, Dave, considered that possibility, that interpretive lens until Justin said it in that interview. And I thought, well, that's actually really insightful. Um, but here, let me describe what I think that means. Um, so let's say, for example, at the outset of Mark Driscoll's career, um, he would have described himself as a Calvinist. 
Well, by the Calvinist, he did not mean a Presbyterian or somebody who was fully reformed in those ways. He was talking about somebody who held to a Calvinistic soteriology. Okay, so that was, he had widespread influence and appeal related to that. But then some of the issues of ecclesiology came to the fore. Questions like, well, wait a minute, but how is a church supposed to be structured? A soteriology is not exhaustive of the Bible's entire teaching about the Christian life or how the church is supposed to be formed. So we have some real questions there. And then all of a sudden that you, you come into conflict with other people who share your soteriology, but not your ecclesiology. And then you run into, but then sometimes a deficient soteriology, or excuse me, a deficient ecclesiology, as I would describe Mark's situation, it really blows up. And that then focuses people like, oh boy, we really need to be focusing on that. We should be listening to what Mark Dever is saying about that. And we should be talking to the nine Marks guys about that. So that's, that's a transition there. But then let's imagine that you're in Washington, D.C. and you're Mark Dever. Everybody there shares the same soteriology. Everybody there shames, shares the same ecclesiology. But some people come from certain backgrounds and other people come from other backgrounds, different countries around the world, different ethnicities within the United States. And all of a sudden you're talking through these things and you realize we share so much theologically in common, but actually we have very different approaches and sometimes even offensively different approaches when it comes to a public theology. Um, so we need to hash those out now in why we vote different ways, why we prioritize different issues, why I react to a police shooting differently than the way you react to a police shooting, stuff like that. And so I don't know, Dave, if it's, if it's an attention issue. I don't know if it's some sort of uh, like grid that you can impose here. It might simply have been the way circumstances, individuals, and events have conspired in some strange way under God's providence to be able to move those things because the ecclesiology issues are not gone. The soteriology issues are not gone. Um, but sometimes different circumstances will press in on you in certain ways at certain times. You know, one of the things that has characterized the uh, the last couple of years in the in the world of young, restless, and reformed, Colin, is I think there's been a number of high-profile celebrity-type pastors who have have fallen. I mean, you 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 mentioned Mark Driscoll, or or been asked to step down or required to step down. I think about Mark Driscoll and Tolian and and Darren Patrick and 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 others. And, and we don't we don't rejoice over this. We we should not judge them. And we hope and pray that they're moving towards God in ways that are that is bearing fruit. But but for us to glean from that and to avoid that, we have to think deeply about that and think deeply about what it what it represents and what should be learned from it. And so I'm 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 curious what from your standpoint, what what lessons do you think pastors and and church planters should be carrying away from these things right now? Um, great question, Dave. I remember when I sat in on the inaugural Together for the Gospel event, and it was a wonderful encouragement to me. It's, the event is still a wonderful encouragement 
encouragement to me more than more than 10 years later. And uh, I remember Mark Dever saying something that I don't know really know what he would what he would think about it now. I don't think he's really changed his overall perspective on it, but he said we are unabashedly leveraging evangelical celebrity culture to get all of you here together today. And I thought, well, that's pretty honest for, of him to say, and effective. Why are all these Baptists and Presbyterians and Charismatics and independent churches, why are they all coming together? Because they want to hear these speakers. Um, and that's different from Mark's goal. Mark's goal and goal was not ever to just build a big conference with a bunch of celebrities. His goal was to bring together believers across denominations who shared care, core gospel commitments and to get them in conversation and, and co-belligerence with one another, especially church to church in their local context. It's one of Dever's just amazing gifts is his ability to to love and to respect and to honor other churches around him. And so, but when you say something like we are leveraging that celebrity culture unabashedly, well, you are playing with fire to a certain degree there. And um, here's the combination, though. And it's interesting. It's not the guys who are Mark's age and above who have had the problems as so much as it is people who are a little bit more more like my age or or within 10 years old or kind of between 35 and 45 and i think in part dave it's because i don't think it would matter what theological tradition you were looking at there's simply a lot of ministry attrition during those times for a lot of different reasons and part of what we're seeing would have been statistically expected. Um, but then let's just let's just say what was statistically expected, combine that with a social media climate and a publishing climate that seeks to make celebrities out of young men. Keep in mind, we're talking, I'm at age 35, and we're talking about something that I wrote 10 years ago. Okay, so this is part of what I've experienced as well. But a difference for me is that I've not had the remotely the same exposure or opportunities that those men you just described had. And I don't know what confidence, Dave, I could give that under the Lord, I would have been in any different position than they were in if I had faced their kind of pressures and their kinds of temptations. I just, I just don't know. So you talk about not judging yeah, there's not a hint of judgment in me there. I can identify some specific things that these men did that that would have been discouraging to me well before any sort of public falling out. But that's not I just there is some there is a volatile, dangerous mix of taking somebody who is young and making him famous on top of all of the pressures of having a large and growing church with a lot of young people, many of whom are in volatile sexual and other kind of situations, then you combine that with, um, you often have young kids, you're in a tense age of, stage of life there, um, you're getting a lot of money thrown at you, you're traveling a lot, man, that was... These are a lot of things that Billy Graham, more than 50 years ago, well more than 50 years ago, saw in the evangelists of his own day. 
and said, I need to avoid all those things because the reputation of evangelists is that they're charlatans on sexual issues, on money issues, on just telling the truth and stuff like that. And I just imagine, and how many more temptations in our own age with our own media culture where you can just go out and let me say this, um, we think through the list, do you think it's a coincidence, Dave, that the men you described were all church planters? I'll just turn the tables on you there and ask you that question. Well, it certainly adds a, a whole other dimension of, of difficulty and sacrifice, which translates into pressure and stress. And uh, I think church planters also tend to have, you know, certain entrepreneurial instincts that can be unsatisfied with the present, looking for the future. So I think there are certain common characteristics that may make uh, the church planting profile more more vulnerable to things. Yeah. Well, let me let me give you an example. And um, Kevin DeYoung is a good friend of mine, and he's certainly a peer of the people that you're that you're talking about there. Kevin's church recently celebrated 50 years. Kevin's been there, I think, 13 years, something like that. I think Kevin came when he was 26, maybe to the pastor there, maybe a little bit older. No, I think 26. Yeah, he came at 26. And um, so he's a young guy, <laughs> a young guy who got a lot of fame uh, because he's, he's a great writer. He's a great speaker that comes with money, that comes with other opportunities. He was elevated to prominent positions um, you know, speaking of these massive platforms with 10,000 people and all that other sort of stuff. But I do think there's something else when you come into a congregation as a pastor and you are the young guy in that room, you're the young guy among that group of elders. There's also something there that is under God's providence, a, um, a, a bulwark against some temptations. It's no guarantee. There are no guarantees here. But another factor is you don't get the credit for that church. There's nobody who thinks you're the genius that is behind everything. And I just think about church planters where you're always the oldest guy in the room, almost always. You're almost always the guy who knows the most in a room. You're the leader to whom everybody defers, and you're the person who gets all the credit for being the founder of the church. That's very difficult. That's not. I'm not trying to knock church planting there as if it's inherently problematic, I'm just saying it's not a complete coincidence to me um, that that those dynamics would play into some of our worst sinful tendencies, especially at this um, at this day and time. Yeah. So how does a church planter uh, protect himself and and the church from that? Because that's you know that's endemic to the to the challenge of church planting. Is you know it's new. You're trying younger people often, you're a younger person. How, how would you encourage the church planters that may be listening to, you know, to, to structure or to set up the church so that they're not as vulnerable to this? I mean, there are one of my one of my key leadership principles that I learned long ago studying Billy Graham's ministry. This also came from Jim Collins and, you know, but I, I think it would be thoroughly biblical. I'll put it that way. Um, is that you, you take all the blame, like not blame, you take all the responsibility for things that go wrong and you, t and you give away all the credit. Ultimately that credit needs to go to God, but it also needs to go to 
your family who have supported you, to other leaders in the congregation. I do think there is a way to do it where you are constantly deflecting. You're deflecting toward God and you're deflecting toward others. You are training up other leaders, training up and sending out other leaders. Um, I just, I think there, there are ways to do it that make it all about you. I would also say, Dave, I'd probably be real careful about publishing at that age. Um, I'd probably be real careful about conference speaking at that age. Um, I mean, I, I would, I have violated this principle myself, so, but I'm not a church planter, but still, I violated this principle myself, but it wouldn't be a bad idea if a lot more church planters followed Tim Keller's model in this, um, is to, to simply to wait. Um, if the Lord, if you have something good to contribute, like the Lord will raise it up in his, in his time. And I don't think this is not a blanket statement. I'm just saying, given what I've observed, there is enough evidence to suggest to me that that's something that you should be careful to do. Um, but I think Dave, we know some men personally who have done a good job with this. Now the publishing thing, like I said, that can go one way or another, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty adamant about the deflecting thing, raising up other leaders and, um, and pushing off, um, just not taking credit for things and raising up others and making it more of a team kind of thing. But you know, you know, well on this, Dave, when it comes to this advice is very mixed because church planters who give away too much authority too quickly often end up church planters who are fired um, because different leaders have a different take on where the church needs to go. So I'm not saying that route is without problems either. Yeah, another thing I've seen, in fact, I've, I've seen this in, in your life, Colin, is that, is that you, you put yourself in a situation where there is, is genuine accountability, not ceremonial accountability or you know, the appearance, but you're, you're embedded in a, in a church and you're submitting yourself to, to other people. Yeah. Well, I think the basic principle there, Dave, is that I can make myself look a certain way via Twitter. I can make myself look a, a certain way when I'm speaking at a conference, but I can't make myself um, anything other than who I am in front of my wife and in front of my son and in front of my pastor and in front of the people in my small group. Um, and so I, I just tend to put a lot more stock in their evaluation of me than I do in somebody on Twitter, which by the way, is really helpful when a lot of people don't like you on Twitter. <laughs> so it's not, it works in multiple different directions. They will encourage you and they'll build you up at times when you're feeling pretty down. And they'll also remind you that you need to take out the garbage when, when you're feeling a little bit too high <laughs> in yourself. Colin, a couple of quick questions. I'm, I'm going to move to wrap up, but I wanted to fire a couple of questions at you and just give you an opportunity to, to quickly respond. First is that I know lately you've been doing some study on, on race and uh, Southern Baptist Convention, particularly as it relates to mission and church planting. What, what's one thing that you've learned that might interest our listeners? I think the major issue there is that it is continues to be easier to plant churches of like-minded people, 
um, to, to have like with like, to build around common interests, to build around common class, around common theological levels, about common whatever. Um, it's likely you're able to grow your church a little bit, and you're able to avoid certain problems that way. And, uh, and that's part of the Southern Baptist Convention's success, historically, numerically, was a shared culture. That is something that the Southern Baptist Convention had that no other comparable denomination of like size had. United Methodist Church, for example, was a national denomination with severe conflict between a lot of its southern expressions and its northern expressions. They were also a merger denomination. But the Southern Baptists really grew as a result of that shared culture. The problem is, Dave, that's not where I mean, that culture is evaporating in front of our eyes, no matter what the election might tell, might tell us. And I'm surrounded by churches that were built off a certain culture in the 50s or 60s or 70s that does not exist today. And so for church planting and also for church revitalization, that is a very, very, very pressing question of how do we build churches around the gospel that bring together different kinds of people, different classes, different education levels, different ethnicities. That's hard, but the power of the gospel can prevail. Mm, Very good. Question number two. Um, We had you in to speak recently at our Sojourn Network Leaders Summit, and you shared a bit on Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, Spurgeon's Church as as a center of mission. So give us something you learned from that study that that really encouraged you and, and would inspire us. Yeah, I'm grateful, Dave, for your work on this topic and you inviting me to speak on that specifically. The biggest encouragement I found there, Dave, is that you can have a large congregation with a very famous preacher. I think Spurgeon was and is more famous than anybody that we can probably imagine um, as a pastor, at least. Billy Graham would be an exception, but as a pastor, at least. I am encouraged, Dave, that it's possible to be that way and still raise up other leaders, to still foster a movement, to still still train others, and for and, and to do good works of mercy and and do justice and to and to adapt to changing, you know, to to have a church that yes meets some of the wealthier people, but also the poorest of the poor in London. I think the key is going back to what I started with. Spurgeon stayed focused on the mission. He recognized an environment where during his tenure, London doubled in size. The mission was critical in being able to do that. And so you keep that perspective and it keeps you from getting that overweening pride that then makes everything in the church about yourself, which then suppresses the development of other leaders in a way that's going to harm your church in the long run. And it's also going to harm the mission going forward and and your legacy, certainly. And so I was encouraged. Spurgeon really did a good job with that. And I'm just grateful for his historic example. Excellent. Last question. Any other writing projects you're working on right now? (laughs) Well, oh, man, you hit a sore spot there, Dave. So uh, I have been working on a history of the religious right as it relates to racial questions. And, um, you know, I'm really not sure if that project is going to be moving forward after the election, in part because I do believe that there is a lot to say about, um, about 
this election and race. I think I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. It's not something you can easily avoid where I live. But I'm not really sure there's an audience for it. Meaning, if the religious right can continue to have success without listening to people who have different experiences, people of different ethnicities, if if white people can continue to vote, white evangelicals can continue to vote above 80% for a political party that's, in, that's succeeding, while African-Americans and Asians and Latino evangelicals are voting on almost, <laughs> almost the same level for the other candidates, it doesn't not really put whites in a position to have to care. And that's one of the biggest problems that I see, generally speaking, that you can call it whatever you want from those loaded terms like white privilege – but generally speaking, if you're a white church leader, you are not obligated by circumstances to care what other people think about you because you don't have to adjust to them. They adjust to you in this culture. And so you hit a sore spot there because I was hoping – well, I was not hoping for a Hillary Clinton win. I'll just be clear. I was not hoping for that. I was hoping for an opportunity to address some really hard, significant issues related to religion and race, but I'm probably going to have to postpone that project at the very least, and I'm going to pray that that subsequent events in the next two to four years prove that project to be unnecessary. That's my prayer, (laughs) that I never have opportunity or need to write that book because Donald Trump and his followers will prove me wrong. Um, I will throw out there, though, Jeff Robinson and I at the Gospel Coalition are working on a series of books uh, directly for pastors. The first one is called Seminary Didn't Teach Me. We're looking at 15 different things that you can't learn in seminary, but uh, but we're trying to help fill some gaps there. Um, these Young Wrestlers Reformed guys are getting into ministry with all this theological knowledge, but they don't have the experience and they don't have the maturity to be able to deal with it. And we want them to not give up. That's coming out probably next year, at least, or else in early 2018. But we're in the middle of that right now. A lot of it's already written. The following one is going to be looking at the role of suffering. We have about nine books planned, but the following one is going to be looking at the role of suffering in in many of our heroes throughout church history. The whole goal here, Dave, is to say, do not regard it as strange my fellow pastors and church leaders, when you suffer many things. It has happened to everyone, and it is for your good. So basically, we don't want these guys to lose heart. We don't want them to give up. We don't want them to quit. We, don't, we want to cut down on those attrition rates that we've been talking about here, and we want to take them back to the role of suffering and the, the pairing of suffering but also redemptive hope in the Christian life and in every single one of our biblical and historical heroes. So that's our hope with this uh, with this series that we're embarking on now between the Gospel Coalition and Crossway. Wow. Well, that sounds like two great offerings that's really going to serve church planters and pastors and and uh, and the guys that are listening to this. So, Colin, thank you so much for your work with the Gospel Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Colin. Folks, this is the podcast, uh, the Am I Called podcast, and this podcast is actually part of a broader platform of resources and materials that are available to you free of charge at amicalled.com. So if you want to hear 
more podcasts or want some material on leadership, leadership development, church planting, just go to amicall.com. Thanks for joining us today.